0: Leadership's incredibly lonely.
1: Work out how our services deliver value for our clients. It's the values that bring the value I heard the other day. I actually don't think I'm a very good manager, but I am a good leader. You can take responsibility, but without negative connotation, it's your fault.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, brought to you by SG Partners. Each episode allows you to hear from real leaders of real businesses with the aim of assisting you to become even more effective at what you do, whether you're already a leader, CEO, business owner, manager, or an entrepreneur. This exploration of leadership effectiveness covers a range of challenges you may already be experiencing yourself. Now, let's hear from our host, international speaker master, NLP practitioner, and owner of SG Partners, Michael Lane.
2: Hello and welcome to Traits of Effective Leaders Podcast. I'm your host Michael Lang, owner of SG Partners, and I'm joined by Jared Wood in this episode. Jared Wood is currently the managing director of Bluefield Asset Management, which provides specialist and practical services to the mining industry globally. Jared has worked in all roles from tradesperson to global practice leader for maintenance. His corporate experience has been across several large mining companies, including BHP, Billiton, Rio Tinto, Peabody and Anglo, and in many countries including Indonesia, Chile. Over the past 10 years, Jared has helped a broad range of clients including small, medium and large companies to improve their asset performance and bottom line. And I've worked with Jared over the 10 years to help improve his team to be more effective as leaders and more effective at their engagement with the marketplace. You're going to enjoy this episode as Jared and I banter around effective leadership traits. Looking forward to it. Enjoy this conversation. Jared Wood, much appreciated for you joining us. I'm looking forward to having this conversation about leadership with you. To kick off, Jared, when I look at your CV, so you uh, started in the mining and you spent some time in Indonesia. What a great place to start!
1: Yeah, I started in the mining industry in central Queensland and found myself in a leadership role as a supervisor fairly young and fairly early in my career, probably too young and too early in my career, so I made a lot of mistakes. So I had to learn about being a leader through those mistakes and in an environment where there were some pretty aggressive sort of people, I suppose, and it was an aggressive place to work. But then going to Indonesia was, was absolutely awesome and I suppose I learned a lot more about leadership over there you know, leading those guys because my role wasn't like a direct supervisor. It was more like a coaching role. Okay. So going back to you getting a
2: leadership role when you were young, was it everyone stepped backwards and you were the last person standing? I mean, how did that come about?
1: No, no, it was uh, there was a supervisor's role came up and I applied for it even though I hadn't been a leading hand and um, I got the role. And it was sort of in that time when the industry started to change from you need to be there for a bunch of years to if you had some qualifications, that gave you a leg up. And I had a part of an engineering degree, I had an associate diploma and, and part of a degree, so that gave me the leg up over some of the other guys that were probably more qualified with in terms of experience and time as a leading hand. Okay, so... The reason they chose you, one of the reasons, is because you have qualification. Yeah, and I was probably one of the best electricians. So you know, the old mistake: put your best tradesman in in a leadership role, and and I I, I learned through some a lot more mistakes as a supervisor. I can tell you. Okay, and then, but why Indonesia then? Yeah. So after I was electrical supervisor only for a year, and then I became a a dragline a supervisor of of um, lots of experienced fitters and a trade that I had no experience in. And, yeah, so that was even more challenging. And then after sort of nine years of being at the same place, or actually 14 all up if you include my apprenticeship, uh, you know, I was like, time to move on, time to get some other experience. And the role in Indonesia came up. So I applied for that right. company. So
2: that that is a totally different environment, different culture, different rules. So what was the first thing that struck you about that environment?
1: Yeah, well, coming uh, from central Queensland and going to a very remote of Indonesia, there was a huge amount of culture shock and taking my wife and two little kids as well. And I thought to myself, I'll never be able to go down to that town. Like, it was just so different to what we're used to in Australia. But after six weeks, I was down there mixing with the locals, you know, no no dramas. And it was a a sort of a step up from my previous level, which was I was a planner before I left. But, you know, it was into a superintendent level. So a bit of a promotion as well. But the role was really interesting. It was, like I said, it was more of a coaching role than a than a formal leadership role. Right.
2: So you're coaching in a different culture with different languages right? yeah. and possibly not even thinking that you can get the same standards that you had in central Queensland.
1: Look, yeah, I just treated the people like I would want to be treated and I learned the language and they were very capable they were just as capable as anyone over here you know the the company had good training technical training in place and that's what i learned you know you can go over there and as a leader you can blame them for mistakes or you can say no that they're just as capable and expect them to step up and they did absolutely and i was extremely impressed with those guys there was different cultural things around whether they would tell you the truth if it was not good news, and all those sort of things, but I had to create that safe space and make sure that they knew they had to tell me the truth, and and I had to demonstrate things. I had to get down and do some some work to show them stuff, you, know, and get my hands dirty, and and they respected that. So I'm just picking up something that you shared that you
2: expected them to step up. Right. That's a big distinction there.
1: Yeah. I expected them to do just as good as anyone else. I didn't, just because they weren't Australian, didn't mean that they weren't just as capable as anyone else.
2: And And did people give you advice before you you went there that may have created that expectation?
1: I don't recall any advice, actually. I went in and plowed in and... I treat people as I find them. And, um, you know, there was some people that were maybe less technically capable, but that was just an experience thing that they were just as smart as anyone else I'd been working with. And then you were in a global role. Was that based back in Brisbane? After that, I went into a superintendent's role with another company and then a maintenance manager's role. And then I got into that global role back in Brisbane, yeah, where I went around heaps of different sites trying to help them improve, you know, like a centralised maintenance specialist or internal consulting type role. Right. Did you see that as a coaching
2: or a mentoring? I mean, how did you approach that role?
1: Yeah, that's, that's good. I just approached that as trying to do what I could do to help the sites, and uh, to be honest with you, I was learning so much. I'm not sure how helpful I was, Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I learned heaps and had a great time and met heaps of people, and maybe there was some benefits out of those couple of years, but I'm not sure really.
2: Well, maybe the benefits are when you started your own company. Now, you knew a lot of people now, right?
1: (laughs) Oh, well, no. Actually, the learning that I took... From those years and the subsequent role in in Chile, the learning that I took from those years has enabled me in, in Bluefield to set up some services that do add value. You know what I mean? Because in those roles, we were doing what people traditionally do, come in and do an assessment. You know, out of the assessment comes 150 improvement actions and no one really knows where to start no one follows up anyway so you know it's really just based on the the passion of the guys at the site so it actually taught me what works and what doesn't work and i did a lot of years or five and a half years of what doesn't work yeah yeah
2: so when when you started your company bluefield a nervous thing to do i've been there done that right Uh, and now 10 years on If you were talking to your younger self when they were just starting a company, that's what we're going to explore today, right? Your journey in a leadership perspective because you've done everything from a bootstrap perspective, like growing a company organically. Yeah, true. Uh, So let's kick off with the first question. When it comes to culture, which I know you're really passionate about, what's the most important aspects you need to focus on as a leader to cultivate company
1: culture? From my perspective, I really think that, you know, it obviously comes down to first setting what the values and principles are. And that when I say values and principles, I mean, the values are the internal team values, how we how we play together. And then the principles are, you know, what we do on a day to day basis to set our culture in the eyes of our clients. And once everyone buys into those because they've got to be developed with the team, then it's just a matter of putting in routines and rituals to make them real, you know. And in the early days when we developed those values and principles initially, we didn't have any routines to make them real. They were just on a bit of paper and the people were involved in developing them. But I, I realised after about six months, I'm like, these things are just a bit of paper. I've got to do something to make them actually be real and a real part of our culture. And I just set up our weekly meeting routines to discuss those values and principles in that meeting as as the start of that meeting. It's the same processes as we do in safety, you know, like before we started meeting, we talk about safety, it just embeds that as the most important thing. So we would always start with safety, but then we'd go into our values and principles discussion and and talk about you know examples of us living them or not. Cool, I like that examples. So
2: you're setting up a cadence. So that was that was you and your team. Now as the company gets bigger, your team now has their people they look after. So yeah. how do you know
1: that that was continuing? It's the same. Like as the company's grown, that weekly meeting routine. Is the same. And we, as we've grown even bigger and across the country, all of those leaders of those smaller teams are doing the same thing. And we've set up in teams just the channels where we capture examples of the principles and the actual value delivery. We capture that in the teams' channels as part of those meetings. So we can go in and have a look to see what we're capturing to make sure that what we started, that routine or process we started is actually being executed. You know, you've got to make sure it's executed properly. There's been times where we'll have a bit of a talk about the value delivery and, you know, some people will just say some stuff which really isn't what the intent of that discussion was meant to be. So we we'll just go, hey, look, we are we committed to this? Let's actually do it properly. You know, so you've you've got to monitor that to make sure it's it's being done properly. But it's it's just rolling it out. The other thing we did is is put it into our performance review process. So every time every six months we do a performance and development review with the with the guys, and that's more focused on just a performance discussion. We're not rating anyone, but it's it's about okay what development they need to grow and all those sort of things. And they've got to bring some examples of of those principles and how they've demonstrated those in the the past six months so Jared, throughout the 10 years that you're at now with the company has any of
2: those values changed or has your expectations of the behavior changed
1: no the values haven't changed we have reviewed them and maybe a couple little words here and there and um one you know we did um do a little thing just to simplify them for everyone. So there was like five or six different areas of core principles and just we did that sort of process a couple of years ago and it's just refreshing them but they're still applicable, they still mean the same and it's, you know, with a new leadership team, they weren't involved in the original development of them so they get to own them by putting their slight slant on it or whatever. So we've done that but they haven't, you know, in any way markedly changed at all. Cool. Thank you. So
2: you've got your values set, you're living and breathing them by the cadence of your meetings. Yep. Let's then talk about strategy. What are the key activities needed to consistently apply to ensure that people are aligned to the strategy? So, I mean, I come across many companies that have a strategy, but when I look into their company, I think, you know, your people aren't aligned to that. So what do you do to keep your people aligned consistently?
1: Yeah, look, if I approach this question with a cultural slant on it, rather, you know, there's all those things you can do with your strategy. You can document it at the high level and have the cascading actions and everyone checks in each week on those cascading actions. Yeah, we do that, but that's not the bit that gets that alignment. So if our, for us, the initial thing that we really had to do was work out how our services deliver value for our clients. The interesting thing too is
2: actually to just appeal back about what gives you that dopamine. Yeah. Because I, I remember I was at, uh, I saw Brenna Brown down in Melbourne a couple of years ago and she was doing some vase elicitation and it was about, I, I really had to think about, What is it that I do on a day-to-day basis that actually gives me the dopamine? Yeah. And when I figured it out, I then had to reframe and reprocess that so it changed accordingly. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. I had to work it out too. A lot of the dopamine was about what I'm getting out of it. Yeah. All right, and then I resend it actually. Well, if my client's getting something out of it and they're growing, then I'll get my dopamine hit.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's it for me too. It's about solving problems and actually seeing that, you know, that makes a difference. You know, I've, I've ever since I was a young fella doing some work that was meaningless never gave me any satisfaction at all. So doing some work that created some value for someone or made an actual real difference, that's what I always felt good about. And... Solving those problems and seeing real outcomes is, is what's always driven me, you know, and, and there's actually I worked out that in mining maintenance, it's availability, you know. Right. It may not be the right metric, but when I see the availability numbers and I see them going up, I feel good, yep, you've seen something move. And in business, it's about revenue and, and profit and obviously not hurting one or anyone or anything like that in the right culture. But it's those numbers that come out at the end which tell you you're doing something right, you know, and the, the revenue and profits got that comes from setting up the right culture and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, yeah it's the values that bring the value I heard the other day and the value.
2: Well, you know, it is a machine that we are setting up and, it is, and our clients have a machine as well. So it's yeah. the oil, the grease, the moving parts, right, yeah. who's maintaining it, who's pulling the levers. It's a complicated thing. Yeah. And, and to me, you know, someone says, oh, you know, leaders are born. No, leaders aren't born. You just have to figure it out along the way. Yeah. And, and the journey along the way is once you figure it out, then it's how do you transfer it? <laughs>
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. And you've got to want to transfer something. You know, as a leader, in my mind, what it's always worked for me, or you know, the way that my brain works, is I need to demonstrate that I'm willing to go further to help someone out, and I make myself demonstrate that I'm prepared to do whatever it takes to help someone out. And I didn't know, I've always been like that, but I, I didn't know that that actually creates, puts you in a leadership position because people follow that, you know. When when people see someone doing the right thing, not for their own benefit but to help someone else out, you get thrust into a leadership role. Like I've, I've never really wanted to be, in charge or the manager or anything like that. And I actually don't think I'm a very good manager, but I am a good leader. Right. And that's because I will demonstrate by my own actions, you know, what's right. And, but I expect people around me to do the same. And yet, here's the distinction though, Jared, you've always been like that. So something,
2: there was a seed there and it just expanded, right? But if you look at everyone in your organization, they're not exactly like you. Right. Yeah, no,
1: it's about becoming consciously conscious of what those things are in your in your own personality that enables you to be a leader. You know, if it's just, it's you might have something in you and everyone probably has that, right? Everyone probably does want to help other people out. But when you become conscious of how that can translate to being able to lead a team and influence people and make a difference... That's what enables you to become that leader. You know, it really is that conscious competence or conscious understanding of what makes a difference. And I actually did see a quote many years ago, something like, um, oh, I can't remember it now, but it was really good. And it basically said that, you know, understanding or listening to other people is great, understanding other people is even better, but understanding yourself. Now, that's the ultimate, (laughs) you know, so it was sort of those phases of being able to work with people, influence them, all that sort of stuff. It starts with listening to people, then understanding other people, but most importantly is understanding yourself. And and I think when you're understanding
2: yourself and that's a journey, it actually requires other people to take that step forward
1: as well. Yeah, well, sometimes I suppose the scary bit is to understand yourself, you actually have to... Face some things that you don't want to know about yourself, <laughs> and address them. <laughs> you don't want to know the clarity. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. That's right. Cool. So, so in this journey as a leader, and you're now very conscious about what you do, which is fantastic. Let's let's go back to that strategy. Right. Um, what's the key activities? That you need to do consistently to ensure that people are aligned with the strategy.
1: Yeah, you know, like I said before, around the setting the values and principles. In my mind, the strategy is about setting the strategy is about how you're going to add value for whoever you're providing a service or a product for. Right. So that's the strategy, and once you understand. You know those values and principles that do add value for your client, and like I said before, you set them up as rituals, you lock that those elements into those principles. you know so once you've understood okay, these are the things that we're going to do to add value, that's our strategy to add value to people. put those lock those into those principles, put them back in. they become your principles of service delivery or you know, product quality or whatever it is. And when you're talking about those principles on a daily, weekly basis, when they're locked into the other routines like performance reviews and things like that, then everyone becomes aware of them, you know. It's not just the the old strategy cascading down, you know, the, the, the technical side of strategy and, and communicating strategy. You'll see a lot of that, you know. Here's your strategy, plan on a page, and you cascade that down and all those sorts of technical things. You cascade down in documents. Locking it into the principles that are talked about in those routines and rituals makes it real in everyone's mind and, and enables the whole culture to adopt those, you know, the core parts of that strategy. I'll give you an example. In our business, for us to add value for clients, sometimes it's about it may not be about, reducing the cost, it might be about delivery on time or a good quality product, which is generally perception-based. So in our principles, it's about, you know, never be late or if you are got to be late, you've got to let people know about the schedule. Um, and then in terms of the, the value perception, you know, that's all about communication. So there's a lot of elements in our principles which are about how we communicate with clients and all that sort of stuff. So guiding principles
2: are really important to you. Yeah. Some of the organisations you assist are big mining companies, right? Yeah. Can you see with clarity that they have guiding principles that
1: they live and die by? Some do, you know, and if I look at the work we do with clients to help them change and turn around and all those sorts of things around maintenance performance, what we help them do is embed set of principles we call them working agreements and we help those teams we're talking at a micro level here we're not talking at a company level but at a micro level we help those teams work effectively together by focusing on a set of principles which we call working agreements that overcome the issues that they're having in working as a team you know what I mean so yeah that works and uh, you know you, you were going to ask a question there later about Change management. Yes. You know, what's the most important thing to focus on when doing change management or transformation programs? And we've done a lot of that. And I've personally, I started that journey many, many, many years ago back in 2003, helping people improve or transform. And I've come down to... The most important thing is allowing people to say what they will do to overcome the problems that they see, that we all see, and then holding them accountable and setting up those structures of mutual accountability to actually do what you said you're going to do and do
2: it properly. So don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with the solution and be responsible for enacting that solution.
1: Well, if we're facilitating that transformation program, we will all agree on the problems mm-hmm. and we'll show them with sometimes data, sometimes photos, because sometimes things, problems that you see are not presented in data. You can't measure it, they're just physically in the world when it look when you're looking at mining equipment. You know, you just got to look at the condition of it. So you all agree what the problems are, and then you allow the teams that are responsible for overcoming those problems to come up with a solution. You might give them suggestions, but they must own that solution, own that what they're gonna to do to overcome that problem. And then it's just simply a matter of coming back and making sure they do what they said they're gonna do. Every person on the planet believes that they should do what they said they were gonna do. You know, So if you just focus on that, you said you were gonna do this, it's not being done. Yeah. Are you going to do it or not? Uh, yeah. Do we need to change it? Is it still right or is it? have things changed? We can change it, but we've got to make sure we're non-negotiable to overcome those problems. And how have you found that in, in the clients
2: you've worked with, them embracing that responsibility or accountability framework?
1: Obviously, you, it, it depends on the people. People are all different, but the ones that embrace it, the, the ones that get into that, they get such good results and they work so well as a team that it's almost like refreshing that the stuff that wasn't being said, that everyone knew was the real problem, they can get that out in the open. And they, being at work, you'd spend such a long time, you don't want to be stressed or worried about things that you can't say. You need to be able to just say it as it is, work together, like any team, you know, and, and um, it's so much more relaxing to have a culture where you can just say things as they are and, and you're committed to working with each other and you work through how we're going to continue to work with each other. It's relaxing. Yep. If we look at core leadership traits,
2: it sounds to me like, and I know you well enough, that this responsibility is huge, taking responsibility, right? In my time in doing change management transformation with companies, I've found that a real gap in leaders really embracing accountability. Right. So how do we how do we get them to shift their mindset around accountability to obviously being a negative? That's why they don't embrace it. To being a positive.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good um, a good question. And the way that we when we work with our clients on this, it's. It's like you have to take responsibility for the results, you know, the ultimate results. So if the the business isn't performing, the equipment isn't performing, whatever, if you don't take responsibility for that, then you won't do what's necessary to fix it. And there's a difference between taking responsibility and feeling personally bad about your own performance or upset or feeling negative, you know, you you can take responsibility, but without that negative connotation, it's your fault. You know, okay, yep, it's my responsibility, but I don't have to feel bad about myself. I'm still a good human. We're a great team. We didn't get it right this time, but we're going to do it better. You know, it gives us an opportunity to continue to improve. So if you looked poor results or poor outcomes and they make you feel bad about yourself, that's where people avoid it, I believe, you know, but if if you can look at bad outcomes, negative outcomes, and still believe that you don't feel bad about yourself, but you do need to take the actions necessary to get better, to get better results, then that sort of, it's a good way of looking at it. And I think that's why people avoid, at least in, in mining maintenance, you know, where, where I see where people, the equipment results aren't there Maybe they think, oh, this could hurt my career or whatever. Blame the OEM, you know, it's the OEM's fault. But if you blame the OEM, you won't do what's necessary to actually fix the problem. And that may be getting someone other than the OEM to come in or, you know. So if you just keep doing the same thing and keep blaming the OEM, you don't get the results in the end. But if you've got someone to blame, you still feel good about yourself or your career doesn't get impacted, whatever it is you're fearful of, you have to overcome that fear Accept the results and then you'll do what's necessary to fix it.
0: Looking to learn more about leadership effectiveness? Follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook to see what we do best.
2: I myself, Jared, many years ago, I learned that I had a fear of failing. Somewhere throughout my life, I had created these emotions around failure. Yeah. Therefore, I avoided it. Yeah. And but also to grow, you need to take risk. Take risk, you're going to have failure. So it sort of it sort of hampered me. So it was me working through those emotions around the fear of failure. Yeah. So maybe I myself, and I'm taking this from this conversation really need to have conversations with people about how they feel about failure.
1: I would absolutely agree with that, actually. I think it's a really good idea. And and that's the same for me. It's a fear of failure. No one wants to feel that they're failing. And it was a big problem for me. You know, I never wanted to feel that I I was wrong, fear of being wrong, fear of failure. Um, Same. And I had to overcome that, you know. I had to move past it and accept it and admit it, you know. Yep. Yep. you know, like even when in, in our business in 2012 when the mining industry fell off the cliff and our business was in a re- really tough situation, people would say, oh, well, you know, you're still doing well compared to others in the industry. And I'm like, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's just an excuse. I've got to work out how we can do even better. You know, yeah. if I, if I you know, i got to accept that business is, Cool, it failed. It wasn't failed, but I've, I'm failing on my own expectations. You know, we can do better. I needed to accept that as my responsibility, Not, it's not the industry or whatever, it's my responsibility. When I accept that, then, I, then I'll do what's necessary to fix it. Yeah, and that is accepting. The acceptance
2: of this is what it is, right? Yeah. Now what can I control? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Right, and I remember that time you just pulled on your boot and said, "Okay, you know," because the industry was still doing stuff; they're still operating. Yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely. And they needed more out of their assets, so they needed you even more. Yeah, get your head around that. Yeah, that's right. You helped me. (laughs) Helped me get my head around it. I remember those conversations. Yeah, and I suppose that's where people are also challenged because to move forward means you now are going to get uncomfortable. Yep. Right, And that's painful and people would rather stay comfortable and that's why they blame because it helps them stay comfortable.
1: That's a great, there's a motivational video on YouTube somewhere and you got to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. That's right. (laughs) And
2: (laughs) And I think in the environments we grow up in either allows us to understand that. Or it creates an environment where we are going to go the opposite. So yeah. you know where if someone needs to be liked, is seeking approval, yeah. they're not going to step into that.
1: Yeah, no, that that was definitely one of the the weaknesses I had is is that need to be liked. I've got a huge need to be liked. So sometimes you have to overcome that, you know, and um because if you, You've got to grow. You've got to get outside that comfort zone. There's no doubt about that.
2: And I think just talking to you, thank you as always. When we say I need to be liked, we're also looking at what the opposite is. So I need to be liked because the opposite means I'm disliked. Yeah. Doesn't no one wrote that equation? But you make it up yourself and you say, well, I definitely don't want to be disliked, so I better be liked. Yeah, true. Right, That's- and in my mother world. I don't need to be liked, everyone knows that, but I don't come across as an arsehole either. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's true. And and the interesting thing, I was listening to a speaker and he says we think about opposites when in reality it could be alignment. Yeah. But when we pull it apart, we then have to choose a side. But if we don't pull it apart, then we just need to seek alignment.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good way of looking at it. I'll take that away from this conversation. All right.
2: One each. Okay. Cool. All right. So, okay, we were talking about failures. So what's the number one lesson that you learned from a failure?
1: Well, I suppose if I think about in a business context, I think it's about this, this lesson around how you add value, understanding how you add value to someone else. Like every business has to add value to someone else, whether it be You know, you're selling a software product or a service, you know, or any physical product. There's got to be some value equation for the people who are purchasing that. And for me, the mistake that I made early on is not understanding that value and then measuring your success at generating that value. You know, and and you, you see that cropping up a lot more these days. You know, all the companies are, doing some sort of survey or whatever post a purchase or anything like that and they got that customer satisfaction rating so they're measuring that i think the ones that are successful actually change or or take action to the feedback that they get because i have also seen some people that measure it but then don't do anything to change and But the successful companies really do action that feedback and, and those responses. And I didn't do that in Bluefield. I didn't really understand that. We probably did it just because we wanted to be good people and good contributors. We did it ad hoc maybe. But when we actually understood how to systemize that in our business, and build that into our principles and part of the way we work so that it become part of the culture that's when our business started scaling so you know not understanding that initially was probably you know that was a, a failure and if I look at other businesses that I had before Bluefield that did actually fail that's core core to that
2: those failures and I think along the journey Jared, sometimes that
1: value may change just a little bit in the consumer eyes. Yeah, 100%, which is why you've always got to measure it, you know. You've always got to go back and get feedback from clients. So we do it after every job. We uh, formally get feedback and make sure that we did deliver in their expectations or if their ex- expectations are different because a lot of people have, you know, they're all different in terms of what they expect. We get that feedback and that's how we improve. We learn from that, you know, and and we do action it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: well done, sir. So if you are talking to yourself back when, what advice or what would you do differently as a leader?
1: To be honest with you, I would let go earlier. There's a mindset that I'm the only one who does it the right way or my way, you know, will always be better, but you've got to get over that. And I had to say to myself, well, okay, it's going to be different. People will do it different to me. doesn't mean it's wrong, you know. Let people go and, um, and deliver the results, you know. that It's up to them to deliver the results. So probably, you know, letting go earlier and just understanding that people will do things a different way to you, but they, as long as they get the results for the client, that's all that really matters. So,
2: and we see this a lot, don't we? I mean, it's it's just part of being a human being. You've got that ego, yeah. Uh, you know, having that humility to say, "Is this serving me?" Yeah. It's that self awareness piece in leadership. <laughs> it's just number one, self awareness. It's about saying, "I'm controlling because." Yeah. Yeah. And we'll rationalize it because I want the best quality, I want the best outcome. But really it's about because I want something in return. This is my ego we're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, possibly. And yeah, you have to let it go, let people move on. And and they've got to get the satisfaction. They've got to get the the feeling of, you know, I did that. You know what I mean? Even when we work with our clients, it's important that we let go as well of the we don't get any ego-serving yes. satisfaction from the results. You know, our clients get those results themselves and they're the ones that get that feeling. We just facilitate that process for them. And, um, you know, they know that we were part of that journey. But in the end, they have to know that it was them who created that that outcome and, and those results. And that's that's what's most important.
2: So ultimately, in what you and I do is
1: about ensuring that they don't need us anymore. 100% in some ways, at least until they are got all the areas that, at cranking, so initial phases, getting rid of unscheduled downtime and, and all those sorts of losses, you know, you can work yourself out of that in 6 to 12 months, and then later on when they're ready to go to the next level, they want to extend machine lives or whatever, and they know you did a good job, they'll come back to you then. Because the smallest wins then are the hardest to get. True. True, that's <laughs> not as obvious. Yeah, yeah. Especially, uh, you know, if you look at reactive maintenance environments, you know, the, the big wins up front actually are all based around this execution culture and all that sort of stuff. And and then to get the next, you know, 5% of improvement, it comes from those other processes and life cycle management and stuff like that. Jared, yeah, I
2: really want to thank you for this. Thank you. Yeah, no Just in this discussion I've had some refreshes and I've had some learning. so thank you.
1: No, thanks Michael. I love uh, talking about this sort of stuff too and um, as you know, I love the work that you do and you, know, you always challenged me and always put me outside of my comfort zone and yeah, that's always been good. I've always grown from the interactions that I've had with you.
0: You have been listening to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, a show which shares insights, experiences, and lessons learned by an incredible lineup of real business leaders. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review or share the show with a friend. To get the show notes from today's episode, go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash podcast. Don't want to miss a single episode? Sign up to be notified when the next one drops. Thank you so much for listening.